the New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Greetings and welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. This is episode 351. I'm Paul Spain. And I'm Rob O'Neill. And I'm James McAvoy. Welcome to the show, guys. Thanks for uh, joining me. It's been a little while since we've had um, either of you on the podcast. Maybe, Rob, starting with you, you can remind listeners where you fit into this world of tech. Yeah, I'm a a technology journalist, I guess, technology and business. I've been around uh, since the 1990s, editing Bits and Bytes originally. So if anybody with... uh, Grey hair and long memory might remember that, but That's um, me. more recently, yeah, <laughs> more recently, uh, IDG again, reseller news. So it's my main gig at the moment. Good stuff. And James, uh, I'm the co-founder of uh, Goodnest, which is sort of like an Uber for home services, and yeah, just been doing sort of internet businesses um, all my life. So worked, I started Fatso, worked at Zero, worked at Trade Me, um, started Treat Me. So yeah. Yes, you've, you've you've done quite a quite a few bits and pieces over the years. Yeah, when you rattle it off, it sounds like a lot, but over like fifteen years, it's kind of like a little bit every few years. Yeah, yeah, it's more manageable. Oh, that's good. Well, let's uh, let's jump in now. Last week, uh, Rob and I um, went and heard about the Data Futures Partnership. Um, Rob, do you want to give a rundown on what this? Um, well, Data Futures New Zealand um, partnership is is all about, and um, yeah, what were your thoughts? Yeah, basically, it's a it's a working group that the government set up to have a look at uh, trusted data use. So, um, th- what they've done is they've been away consulting, um, I guess, with industry and all sorts of people, uh, individuals about um, uh, what they are comfortable with in the, in the use of their data, the collection and use of their data. So they've um, they've tried to come up with a, a voluntary um, structure for um, businesses and government departments to uh, to comply with, I guess, um, transparency, to provide transparency to people about the use of their data, so about the collection of the data and what it's going to be used for. Um, they've come up with um, basically a process and a thing called a data wheel, which is a, a segmented wheel. A bit You think, you think about... Um, um, something like the uh, Green Star ratings, or something like that, you get on an appliance, or you know, power ratings, or whatever. This is a, a, a kind of the equivalent for data. So, when you're um, being asked for data, you can have a look at the data wheel. It's interactive on, on on somebody's website. You can have a look at the various questions and click through and find out more information about what your data is being collected for, and you can give permission for the collection of that data. So it's um, yeah, it's it's a it's they said it was a world first, and you know, I've got no reason to dispute that. It actually looks like um, a really good um, stepping stone to something perhaps um, that isn't compulsory in the future, but um, that isn't voluntary in the future, that is actually compulsory. But uh, it, there's a lot of work gone into it. I was, I was actually very impressed with what they've come up with. There's eight questions that organisations have to ask themselves, uh, work through, a, uh, I guess, a process about how data's, what data is being collected and why and what's being disclosed. And um, basically the idea is just to instill trust um, from uh, individuals and organisations collecting their data. Yeah, it seemed like a good uh, good approach to me. One of the one of the comments was that often organisations are a little bit cautious because they're not they're not you know quite quite sure um, what's going to work, what's not, what people are going to be comfortable with and, and not comfortable with. But having a standardised framework that uh, you know. Both, uh, you know, private companies and government organisations, so on, can can all sort of follow um, the same mechanism. 
that people can yeah. also get get quite used to um, uh, understanding uh, what are the what are the options and, yeah. and how an organisation sharing data would be really good. And also, it means that you know those who maybe um, haven't thought so much of, around their users, uh, Facebook <coughs> um, might uh, you know be be become a bit more obvious to everyone yeah. kind of what's well, uh, I, th- I think it's unlikely uh, facebook will sign up but uh, you know <laughs> but but, but you know yeah. there's a potential if this thing catches on for other yeah. countries around the world to as you you know alluded to make some of these things more uh compulsory yeah yeah and you know the the rules to uh, uh to tighten up in such a way that uh, mm. that bigger players have to um you know pull up their socks if they uh, um, uh, misbehaving. Although you know, I think it, you know, it's fair to say that the on you know the the, the online community is uh, is pretty quick to slap down the likes of uh, of of Facebook. Although mm-hmm. um, you know, it doesn't doesn't always have a have an impact. What are your thoughts on this, James? Is it something that you think about? With, you know, within um, uh, Good Nest around all the data that you store and, you know, how yeah, how yeah, it's appropriate it, to... It comes up a little bit. We normally see it from the other side where we'll get sort of requests from like, um, it could be like wins, you know, from a previous sort of um, cleaner that we might have had and they're like, can you please give us their current phone number and whereabouts? And you kind of, a lot of our staff are like, oh, they're kind of governmental, but is this like a legitimate thing that we could do from a privacy point of view? So, um, I mean... Fundamentally, anything that gives kind of consumers greater transparency in what companies are doing with their data, it's a good thing, and it kind of improves awareness for that. I think, I think one of the one of the concerns is that companies are collecting massive amounts of data at the moment, um, kind of in the because they're not quite sure what what they're going to need, so they're collecting as much as they possibly can. Um, everybody's talking about data. Everybody's talking about the value in data, but um, defining exactly how you're going to use it is is actually going to be worked out in the future rather than now. So, mm. so this this structure actually forces people, I think, organisations who are collecting data to have a think about the data they're collecting and what they're going to use it for, and whether it's really necessary and um, and so forth. So I think it, it adds a bit of discipline to perhaps a bit of a Wild West um, data free-for-all that's going on out there at the moment. So uh, it's got to be a good thing. That's mm, yeah. mm. In New Zealand, we still see, I saw a, uh, a, a what would you call it, a, an IT company of, of sorts here in Auckland that had either gone through a rebrand or set up a subsidiary and I was just getting spammed by them, um, the pr- promoting their services. And so you're still seeing people that don't even comply with our, you know, with simple rules around, uh, around, you know, spam. And, you know, I don't know how they got, uh, my details, but, you know, I certainly wasn't, uh, um, you know, very impressed to, uh, uh to see what they were doing. Yeah, the, the privacy acts a really interesting one actually because it um it, it's it, there are exemptions for it for instance if your um if your uh, uh, information is already public uh, if it's on a public register is what they talk about so if it's already available on a public register then um it's not really private information anymore um exactly what is a public register I'm not quite sure because there's all sorts of ways in which you can find somebody's you can guess somebody's email address you know you can if you know where they work you know what the what the structure of the email address is so you can guess what it is you you can, there's all sorts of ways of finding out people's email addresses. Then you add, so. add to that a birth date and a few yeah. other bits and pieces of information, and, and you've got enough yeah. for identity uh, theft <laughs> pretty quickly, right? Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, one thing I, I've dealt with a number of times uh, in recent years is 
when you uh, do certain types of transactions, they want a copy of your ID in some form. Now, it doesn't take much these days, you know, a little bit of an ID bank account number and you can be sucking money out of people's accounts mm. uh, we definitely have some yeah there's some challenges there especially when that stuff floats around in an electronic context that you know who who knows how well particularly sort of smaller organizations you go to a, a car dealer who says oh well the, the rules are that we have to have a copy of your driver's license we have to have a you know a copy of it yeah we're just going to scan it. it's going to be fine Mm. Thinking, well, yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure. I, I trust the, you know, random little uh, uh, car dealer to look after my data. I certainly don't have a lot of confidence in uh, the local, uh, you yeah, know, GP, the local medical practice to look after my data. Um, so, the, these sorts of, um, uh, this sort of framework where actually they're having to say what they're doing and mm. and mm. so on is good. I think I'd be also interested in. Um, the the transparency around how well they protect it, yeah. although there could be two sides to that as well. They make it clear how poorly they're protecting it. They can make them a uh, uh, a target for somebody to uh, yeah. uh, to break in. Mm-hmm. There was there was also a bit of talk about re-identification of anonymous data, anonymized yes. data. So that's a, that's a, that's a bit of a growing issue. And I, I noticed in the states, uh, I think it was the United States, or no, maybe it's the UK. I think it's the UK is thinking of actually criminalising re-identification of anonymous data, anonymized data. So. Um, uh, yeah, it's obviously another emerging problem. So you could go on your data wheel, you could be guaranteed that your inf- this information will be anonymized for use in some particular regard, and then some some clever person comes along and uh, and de-anonymizes you in some way. Uh, mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, that sort of stuff's certainly been um, you know been done, and um, yeah, with with the rights well the wrong sets of uh, of data, it's uh, it's possible for those it's those sorts, possible, sorts yeah. of things yeah. to. Uh, uh, if, you're, if, if you're in a small group of, uh, if, if, if your data is quite unique, especially, you know, you, you, you can you can perhaps be very easily identified. Well, you you know, yeah. you imagine a, a scenario. You've got one one database that, um, yeah, maybe has information about. Uh, let's just pull something out of the air. Um, you know, people that suffer from a particular illness, and it puts puts. You know, puts it on a map, and it and it just shows, say, their uh, their town, uh, for instance. And so you got that, and then you somehow find some other data somewhere else, and you identify. Actually, we know there's one person in that town that's got that illness. And you tie that together with other bits and pieces yeah, of, exactly, of information, yeah. and yeah. suddenly it's and it like, happened, oh, then. now we yeah. now now we know because they say, <laughs> oh, in this particular, you know, they break it down by town. In this town, these are the stats we know about people with this illness. It's like, well, there's only one mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> when you match it with another data set, and. Um, you know, suddenly you know all these things. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's really interesting, you know, also just from, um, you know, point of view of really fundamental facts about people, you know, what you can actually do with that information. Like the amount of times I've kind of called up an 0800 with an ISP to change something and they ask for your name and your birth date. And you're like, okay, well, that's not going to be a hard one to sort of figure out with Facebook and all sorts of other things. And I heard something the other day where um, someone gave their bank, they had a company that had their bank account details. I think they sold on Trade Me, gave their bank account details, put the money into. Everyone does it, right? And um, this company just said, right, well, this person just said, right, I've seen this company. I've seen the bank account details. I'm now going to set up a direct debit as them. And I'm going to send money into my account. And so they basically set up this direct debit. And they were just, 
taking pull, straight money from out of those companies' account into yeah. their own. And it was probably about four or five weeks later because when you see direct debit, you don't even think twice. But just knowing the sort of the company name and the bank account number, that's all they needed. Just and then they just sort of signed away documents. Mm, mm. Yeah, it's amazing. Very, very easy to do. Mm. Yeah. It shows the power of data. That's why people are collecting it. Mm. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Now, the Commerce Commission have um, been watching our internet providers, our telcos, and it seems as though there's been yeah one or one, more than more than one or two uh, breaches, and they've sent out uh, warning letters to uh, the big guns and um, Vodafone, Spark, Two Degrees, uh, also My Republic, with sort of I guess a you know reasonable list of uh, uh, things that each uh, telco has been um, uh, warned for. I guess well it does it does it does vary actually. Um, they're all hit with things. Most of them didn't didn't seem too major, uh, but it does seem it's pretty hard for our telcos to sort of stri- stay on the the straight and narrow all the time with plans and services constantly changing. They're all working really hard to compete, and uh, yeah, it, it seems pretty clear that no one's uh, no one's uh, perfect all all the time. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, it's basically the word that keeps being repeated through those um, those warnings, uh, those bullet points, maybe three. I think one of them got one warning, several got two, one or two got three. And the word that keeps coming through is misrepresentation, uh, misrepresentation of the availability of a plan or the speed of a plan or the latency of a plan or the terms of a plan or something like that. Mm. So um, it's basically, um, you know, it's, it's a very competitive business. There's probably... Um, you know, you, you're, you're trying to um, burnish your uh, your products, make them look good, and you go just a little bit too far. I mean, it's, it is easily understandable, but it's also something that they've been, they, you know, several of these companies have been uh, uh, fined before uh, for doing similar things. And I think it's uh, really a matter of um, them getting a little bit more professional, I think, about, about how they describe their products and, you know, making sure it's clarity and that they can actually back up their claims. So um, the, uh, one of the interesting things about that um, that uh, statement from the Commerce Commission is that they're actually investigating uh, billing issues. Now that could be much more serious um, if we've you know we looked at some of the uh, issues that various other organisations have, have fallen foul of, people like Wells Fargo in the US and so forth. If there's serious trouble with billing, uh, overbilling. Um, uh, charges perhaps that can't be justified or that haven't been uh, haven't been agreed to, then um, then that that would become a very large story, much larger than the than the warnings that were issued the other day. Yeah, I mean, when when mistakes are made on the uh, the billing front, it can uh, it can get pretty painful for uh, for a, for a company. Although you know we're talking about the the bigger players, it's it's not so obvious, but. Um, yeah, it's, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of curious how, how individually they're, they're addressing these things because often they don't have particularly big, uh, you know, teams that are, and, you know, involved in the process of signing, uh, signing things off and, uh, you know, preparing material that, that goes out to market because they need to move really quickly to get the new offer out there. And um, away it goes. But the, the ramifications, if they've mucked something up, can, mm. uh, yeah, can be hundreds of thousands, if not into the millions, yeah. know, potentially. 
Yeah, it makes you wonder whether, um, you know, when you're inside one of these telcos, you probably, you, you would look at some of the marketing material and go, that's great, thank you very much, that's exactly what we want. Um, whereas if you're on the outside, maybe, and you've got a different perspective, you know, you, 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 you haven't drunk the Kool-Aid, uh, you could have a look at it maybe with a little bit more of a critical eye. Um, it must be hard when you're inside and when you're living living the dream of, uh, of driving your telco to success to actually pick up on these kinds of things. But, you know, that's what lawyers are for. That's, that's kind of why we employ lawyers. Mm. It would be, um, I can imagine, quite difficult. Um, not not trying to pick sides, you know. As, as as sort of an advertiser, you know, you're watching what your sort of competition's doing, and you're probably um, quite sort of um, you're sort of au fait with the, the the technical truth to what you're saying. Like, you know, this is a gigabit connection. But I think it's what they probably forget is that I think a user's reasonable expectation of what they're saying is probably quite different to what they know that they're providing. So, you know, when you say this is the speed, they know, well, in theory, at 3 a.m., if no one's downloading Game of Thrones, then that's what you'll hit. But the reality is it'll never happen. And the problem is, is once one does it and justifies it to themselves, I suppose they're all sort of away trying to, you know, seeing seeing that it's an okay thing to do and trying to beat, beat each other on that. Yeah, and in the end, the, the, all of this activity has been generated from customer complaints. So mm. it's not like uh, the Commerce Commission has been particularly pedantic. This has been generated because people are complaining about what they've been told and, and the reality of what they're experiencing. So it's a lack of customer uh, centricity or customer closeness mm. if, the, if the telcos don't realise that there are problems there yeah. and they have to be told by a regulator. Um, yeah. I had I experienced not with a telco um, but with... Auckland, uh, what do they call themselves? The uh, Auckland Transport and their hop card. Have either of you used uh, used the the hop card? The I've used it occasionally. Yeah. Yeah. Public yeah, transport. Yeah, yeah. I've used it a couple of times. Mm. So, um, so anyway, um, for those that are listening, some people will be surprised. Uh, I've just moved again, um, and um, so uh, we've got uh, a house on the market, and so. Um, yeah, we've, we've, we've moved to another location and we're very close to uh, train line. And of course, um, son Pablo, he's six and a half and, uh, oh, it's a bit of an exciting thing to go on the, on the train, which we've been on the train before, but not for, you know, for a couple of years or so. So, uh, so I thought, okay, well, I'll go and get some hop cards. And so, you know, went down to the, uh, uh, went down to the mall and grabbed three hop, hop cards, loaded them up with $10 worth of credit each. And the lady at the counter highlighted to me, Oh, you need to go online and register these. Cause she could see that I was there with my, uh, my son. So you need to go online and register, uh, at least the card for your son. Um, so that, you know, you, he won't get charged, uh, adult fares. And I thought, oh, well, you know, that's fair enough. So I'll go through that hoop. And of course, these, you know, the cards themselves aren't directly connected to, to the internet. So there's a process to sort of up, you know, update them and they have that sort of stored value, uh, loaded on. Uh, but you don't necessarily think of that when you jump online. So I went online, registered all the cards. Went straight through, thought, well, $10 isn't much. I'll drop another 10 or $20 onto each card. So I went through and, uh, and did that. But the, the UI didn't come out and tell me that I had succeeded or failed. Um, on one card, so went to the next card and did it. And at the end of it, I was like, well, I don't know what's going on. I went back in. It says you've only got $10 on each card. And I'm sort of scratching my head wondering what's going on, but it at least registered Pablo's card and put his age in there. Okay. So we could, so wandered down to the train station. And, uh, I guess when I thought about it, I thought, well, all of, all of these different terminals will be linked up via the internet. It's going to be real time. So the moment I sort of tap, um, Pablo's card, 
it's going to zap back into its system. It'll get that data that he's a he's a child, and they've got posters all over the place at the moment saying you know ninety nine cents for weekend rides for uh, for children. So I'm thinking, oh, you're going to get charged ninety nine cents for the ride anyway. We got into the city and got off, and he'd got charged the same amount as me. And I thought, oh, this is a little bit odd. So went up to talk to their um, uh, customer service when we were, actually when we we're heading back to the trains and uh, have a chat to them. All they were interested in was who was the retailer that sold me the card so they could give this person a slap because the person should have told me that it can take days for them to update. So uh, they had no interest in sort of saying, oh, well, we're really sorry that, you know, mm. they're just like, oh, no, no, it can take, you know, three days for this, you know, system so to what, work. Is it batch processing? Don't tell me the very slowly. Oh no! Yeah. So uh, <laughs> yeah. So there were, you know, there was no sort of comment of, oh, we're sorry, which we you know, the website should have been better. And yeah. look, yeah, our system isn't isn't anywhere near real time at the moment. Um, so yeah, and even for the return journey home, you know, a few hours later, um, yeah, he was still charged in the toll fare. So <laughs> it was just like, really, it seems seems. Yeah, quite backwards. If you're going to create a web interface, you need to make it very, you know, very, very clear um, to people. And I know we're used to just clicking through stuff, but um, I did you check I, whether they had HTTPS or? Uh- well, I, um, I yeah, I don't think they're as bad as the um, what is it the the northern uh, toll road northern which toll when, road when, when ago, yeah. opened up. They were asking for your credit card details and a non uh, you know non secure connection. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's 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 um, a little bit odd when uh, when you know organisations of of such scale uh, muck things up uh, so. So badly. Yeah, you can almost guarantee there's going to be some legacy systems in there in the background that simply aren't, um, I guess, up to scratch or fit for purpose in, a, in an e-commerce mm. kind of world, you know. Mm. If they're still batch processing stuff, that's uh, that's pretty sad. Yeah, well, I think there's probably a whole lot of politics behind uh, that one, so uh, never never mind. Um, now, JB Hi-Fi um, have been in the media and... It seems as though that um, because they're they're an Australian uh, company, they've been Rob. Do you know how long they've been in New Zealand? Uh, at least a decade, I would have thought by now. Yeah, they really? opened that shop on Queen Street. Um, oh, yeah, I don't know, but I would say at least a decade. Yeah, yeah. okay, yeah. okay. Um, so yeah, so somewhere in that in that uh, direction, but they've um, they've not done very well in, in New Zealand. They're you know. Uh, losing money here. It says that their New Zealand division um, had a loss of uh, two point seven uh, million for the last uh, twelve month period that that, that ended uh, mid year. Uh, the previous year they made a million dollar profit, but that compares, um, yeah, with pretty good um, pretty good earnings in Australia. So what do you think's going on here in New Zealand? Is there is there are there room for these types of uh, retailers like JB? Are we buying things on online? What's the what, yeah. what do you think the challenges? Well, I mean, I guess the only way you can answer that question is to compare them with some of the competitors. Now, obviously, Dick Smith is no longer in existence, and they've uh, they've um, had a very hard time. But it was mainly uh, they shot themselves in the foot really through very bad management. Um, the other one you maybe look at is uh, is Noel Leeming, which has actually done rather well. 
Um, they certainly had a spike when when Dick Smith went out of the market. I haven't seen mm. their numbers since, but mm. they, but you know, they they seem to be a fairly tightly run ship and doing doing pretty well. I think the, the one of the problems with with JB is I'm, I'm not sure how many stores they have. I don't think I don't think they actually have the kind of mass that they have in Australia. And sometimes I question maybe some of the sites that they have. You know, there's um, they're certainly in in malls and things, which can be quite expensive. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, they, they had a, uh, their, their sales actually went down in New Zealand, uh, down by 0.3%. And I think in Australia, sales went up about 10, nearly 11%. So there's quite a big divergence between what's happening there and here. Yeah, I think very 100, 172 million um, Australian was their profit over yeah. here. So, yeah, complete sort of chalk and cheese. Yeah, yeah. They, um, yeah, I mean, you think who are they, who are they competing against? They've got Noel Leeming, they've got Harvey Norman, they've got the warehouse. Um, who else would there be? I mean, it, it is a very competitive market, mm-hmm. and you're competing against all the online players as well. Uh, there's not much margin there. Be interesting. I don't know if they broke down sort of the revenue by sort of you know the different sort of categories, but you know, kind of thinking when you go into Nolimin and JB Hi-Fi, the thing that sort of strikes me the most being different is um, when you go into JB Hi-Fi. There's obviously a lot of film, like DVDs, CDs. I think. Um, I think so. Maybe even some LPs. Um, and you just wonder sort of over the last few years how that's been going for them with yeah. Netflix yeah. and Spotify. And all yeah, it does seem to be a lot of, a lot of floor space for those sorts of things, yeah. or certainly when you include um, you know, game, gaming in there. Mm. They did make an announcement, I think a few weeks ago, that they were getting rid of whiteware out of their uh, New Zealand stores, which was sort of a, a new addition anyway, and I guess they've, uh, they've worked through pretty quickly that it hasn't... Uh, hasn't been helping them. There was a bit of a breakdown out of Australia. I think the, most of the hardware items are still going pretty well. That's where the growth is coming from. I think the online is growing quite strongly, but it's a, still only about 3 2 or 3% of total revenue, so it's quite small. Yeah, pretty small, certainly here in New Zealand. Yeah, but software was declined, declined about 10%, and you can just understand that. I mean, who buys, who goes into a shop to buy software these days, you know? Mm. That's, um, yeah. And you, you can't actually buy anything on the website, can you? You, you, can, pl- you can place, well, not software-wise, but, I mean, you can order product online for them that mm-hmm. they'll that mm-hmm. they'll ship out to you. Yeah, but it's it's actually quite a handy service. Um, They've got. I, yeah. I was on there the other day. They've got uh, live chat that actually responds to you. Um, they've got um, so you can if you if you really need something in a hurry, which I did because I was flying out to Australia. They'll tell you, okay, I can guarantee you there are three of those in our St Luke's shop, which is near you, and then you can go and get it. You can go, and go to the airport. That's handy. You know? yeah. So that I, I thought that was terrific, actually. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, if they can rely on those stock systems, exactly. Often, what happens is they say, actually. Well, I know this. Sorry, that was no leaming. That was no leaming. Yeah, actually, I know with no <laughs> leaming, they usually tell you you should actually call the store before going over there because yeah. their uh, stock tracking system could be wrong, and you want to check the store can actually find the find the product. Um, th- but on the on the JB Hi-Fi um, front, you know, you're talking. It's you know, it's nice with being able to you know order online and so on um some may recall i think it was last year when uh, kevin mitnick was in the country doing his um talking on cybersecurity at, at, at sky city he took the jb hi-fi website and uh did a little bit of injection and uh he managed to i think he he took something like a um uh, I, I can't remember the exact mix of products, but you know, I think there was maybe a MacBook in there and some some Windows laptops, and he added them to a cart, and then he um, 
mod- modified the quantity sort of behind the scenes that passed back into the cart to a minus quantity on uh, on some of the items and it reduced the price down. So basically, you know, he could order a, a new MacBook for a uh, hundred bucks that was, uh, you know, with a whole lot, a whole lot more than that. Mm. Um, I, I think after after I tweeted about it um, pretty quickly, uh, the I remember it took picked up quite a bit of pace because Kim dot com retweeted it because he was he was joking that he was going to have <laughs> them sent to dot com's place and put the uh, blame on uh, on Kim dot com. Uh, but it, yeah, it wasn't it wasn't too long before JB Hi Fi actually took their uh, web store down to. Yeah, uh, that's quite uh, that's quite extraordinary for Kevin it. Mitnick to do that, isn't it? I mean, when you think about well, he he did it in a in a manner. He says, "Look, I'm not going to click through yeah, and click yeah, yeah. buy. I'm just going to show you how it works because he, he didn't want to you know legally." implicate himself he spent enough years in jail already so but he showed enough that i think he felt he could that's sort uh, of be okay but that uh, white hat black hat ha- hacker thing is, yeah. is so blurred now with the the guy in the states who's just been arrested you know the guy who who, uh, who basically solved the WannaCry problem is now that's been, right. been arrested yeah. and he's supposedly a good guy um it's like anybody who's in that business is uh, is walking on very thin ice, no matter what colour hat they claim to be wearing. Yeah, yeah, I think you have to be uh, you have to be pretty uh, pretty pretty cautious. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm pres- presuming that uh, JB got their head around that one and and uh, and 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 fixed it up. So uh, yeah. Um, now on to oh, well, I guess that there's that sort of broader picture actually that we should um, drill into because we've got another topic we want to talk about, which um, could could tie in here. And and this is um, New Zealand Post have launched a new service and uh, I guess it's um, you know this this is the way things operate you know these days you don't just do a full launch of a product uh, you go and try it out on the market and so they've launched what the the um, mainstream media are referring to as an Amazon Prime uh, type service and they're calling it Shipmate um, which is, a, is sort of a an, an interesting title, but you pay uh, at the moment for their trial, which runs uh, from uh, uh, I think mid, yeah mid uh, mid August through to mid October. You pay twelve dollars and twelve dollars twenty four dollars. I've forgotten already. Um, I think it was it was. Just $12 for that two-month period. So works out if it was on an annual basis, you'd be paying $72 or $6 a month, and they'll give you free shipping of products from certain vendors. Now, uh, it seems like the, the deal they've done has been with the warehouse group because it covers uh, the warehouse, Noel Leeming, Torpedo 7, and, and uh, warehouse stationery. At this stage, although they may add others uh, to that mix, and they've talked – and I don't know how many people they've signed up, but they've talked about taking up to 5,000 people onto this trial, and you basically get unlimited free shipping uh, in a similar vein as what you get with uh, with Amazon's uh, Prime service, uh, except this is coming from a really different angle, that it's actually coming from uh, the delivery service rather than uh, from the, the retail end. So I'm not quite sure um, how how that partnership looks behind the scenes. Um, but it is really interesting with the knowledge that Amazon are, uh, are very close or, or, you know, getting, getting fairly close to, uh, to launching in Australia. And of course, those uh, tentacles from a Melbourne warehouse will no doubt reach out and, uh, mean we'll be seeing products delivered here into the, into the New Zealand market. Um, much, much. 
quicker and I'm sure at a lower cost than what we've been seeing for uh, for those Amazon orders from the US in the past. Mm-hmm. Which aren't exactly slow anymore, <laughs> are they? They arrive pretty quickly. It's, yeah. it's, I mean, it's pretty good when yeah. you add, you know, eBay and Amazon, your different options for ordering, ordering yeah. products. Uh, you know, it's certainly, some things are pretty good from a price perspective. Some things are really good from a, from a pace of, uh, uh, delivery. But once you've got a, a warehouse that's, uh, that much closer, it's, uh, it's really going to change things. Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting, um, it's kind of an, an expected move. Um, of, of sort of you know the warehouse and the post and trying to sort of find their their place with Amazon coming along. Um, you know you think of, I guess uh, you know what this sort of means in the bigger picture, and you say, well, I think a lot of people kind of find Prime so attractive because you know they've got the range, the price, and then there's the convenience by having these products just shipped really quickly and no sort of cost. Um, you know when I think of the warehouse compared to Amazon, I kind of say, well, is the range is the range quite there? probably not enough to you know get this sort of free shipping to make someone sort of just say well i'm going to use everything from like cabbages to to a new sort of um cell phone but um why 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 not why do you think why do you think that here in new zealand where we actually we get a good view we get mm. an advance warning because we see what amazon are doing in the u.s we see what netflix are doing in the u.s we see what these big players are doing we know it's inevitable that they're actually mm. going to come into new zealand and if the, the, you know, for those companies, if they just sit on their hands and don't do a whole lot or don't deliver something that's really, really good, the big players will just come in and stomp on them. Uh, you know, the, the, the big exception was, and you know, there wasn't an incumbent player. Well, there must have been some incumbent sort of auction houses. Uh, you know, was trade me looking at mm. eBay and, and, you know, basically launching, getting such a good product that they, they really, you know, owned it to a really big degree in New Zealand. But yeah, you look at those who are providing streaming services here in New Zealand. You know, generally they, you know, whether it's Sky or Spark, they left it so late in the game to launch that they didn't, you know, they didn't have uh, that much in terms of market share and so on by by the time Netflix launched. Yeah, you know, what you're saying around the warehouse, I mean, pretty poor offering. Uh, in terms of you know when you compare it to uh, to an, an Amazon type offering, I mean even you want to pick up some goods from a warehouse store, their traditional dealers, oh yeah, you order that you know whatever it is, you might pay a hundred bucks to pick it up from the store. I mean, excuse mm. me, where does that make any sense to anybody? You can walk into the store and pick it up for free, but if you order it online, it's going to cost you another hundred bucks like um, be, be, because because they're they're making some sort of assumption or thing that well maybe it's not in that store, so we're going to have to ship it to that store. Well, mm. still, if you walked into, I mean. I would have thought they would have been investing for the future and building up this loyal base of customers because they know that that's where it's going to go mm. and would try to deliver something that would have have people you know that were that were huge fans of what they've done they're a local New Zealand company um but I don't know these yeah. these companies just sit back and uh, it's like they're sitting back and doing a, a half assed sort of a, attempt at something and just waiting for Amazon to come in and eat, eat their lunch. Oh, yeah. Or am I way off, off, off I, on these things? I think um, I'd, I'd be surprised if anyone in, in the warehouse five years ago wouldn't be talking about this. I think the challenge, though, that they have is, you know, you talk about range, you know, prices and convenience. They're trying to do convenience. If they were to try and have the range that Amazon can carry in this market, you know, in the, the sort of existing just New Zealand, 
I just don't don't think they'll be able to make a profit. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it, it is a huge range, but even on the products that they've got, yeah. it's it seems like they've they've kind of missed. They've, yeah. they've missed a lot. Yeah, I mean, oh, you know, they're, 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 they've moved into online sales, and like most retailers, that's kind of staggering along. I mean, you see you see the percentage numbers are really low. Most people still shop in-store, mm. um, uh, and uh, it's going to take a hell of a lot, really, I think, to get those um, uh, proprietary branded e-commerce efforts like the warehouse um, ticking along and becoming a major revenue mm. generator. Mm. I mean, they're really... Um, I think that that's that's really difficult. But one thing one thing you, you would say is that there is certainly a lot of innovation being attempted here. I mean, having come yes. out of having come out of uh, media uh, and seen media disrupted for twenty years, it's actually good to see people um, having a stab at something. And I think if you if you focus in on NZ Post, perhaps a little bit more than the warehouse, that has become a very innovative place, mm. uh, technologically innovative as well. They've developed their own API ecosystem, so pe- pe- people can integrate with their own systems. Um, they're doing some really clever stuff. Now, whether it succeeds or not, I don't know. But they um, they're certainly giving it a nudge. Um, yeah, and and I guess it, you know I mean it's it's fair to say that Amazon operate in a manner unlike really anybody else because they haven't been that focused on making profits. They're m- more focused on just you know growing their uh, their customer base and their sphere of influence and just you know getting you to interact with them. And yeah, most companies can't can't afford to operate like that they're certainly rewarding their executives based on short-term goals not based on look we're going to give you that bonus in five years or ten years based on what you achieve over a long term it's well how did you do the last quarter or the last year and here's your bonus uh so there's kind of an incentive mechanism to deliver a result now not actually to ensure that the company's doing really well in five or ten years' time. I'd be curious, actually, how how Sky's board handle that in terms of remunerating John uh, Fallot as their their CEO, um, because you know that's a, that's another one which is obviously being disrupted as we uh, as we speak, and it must be very hard for uh, you know for for them in terms of figuring out how how best to uh, yeah. do that. Yeah, I guess the, the safe harbour that these companies probably thought they 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 had. Uh, is is dis- disappearing really fast, you know. It's mm. um, it's it's basically going to go, and if they don't um, manage to pull something out of the hat, then they're, they're basically their existence is threatened. Mm. Uh, it hasn't been a happy time for the warehouse over the last few years. That you know the the financials haven't it hasn't really been grown. It's reached kind of its peak. Um, as we've talked about a little bit about Noel Leeming, that seems to be pretty well run. Torpedo Seven, I think you know that's a good experience. I don't know if anybody's been actually into one of their shops recently, but it's uh, I've always found it very useful and very well priced. Um, it's you know it's quite a good quite a good group they've got there. I haven't, mm. I've never been into the warehouse stationery, but uh, yeah, yeah, they they were something like a fifty percent or fifty one percent shareholder of Torpedo. Uh, seven. Have they taken that over entirely? I'm Do you not know? sure. No, not sure. No, it's yeah, interesting. Yeah. Mm. But yeah, I mean, they have to innovate and they have to they have to go digital. I mean, you know, how much how much is just will convenience matter? I mean, that, this this delivery stuff we're talking about with Amazon really is about them addressing the one problem they do have, which is convenience. I want it now. Mm. You know, and they can, they're getting very close to being able to solve that problem. And when that goes, uh, traditional retailers really have, have, have a question to answer. I think, like, sort of on the convenience point, though, there's, there's kind of, um, 
it's a bit of a trap when you just look at the the shipping and say, well, that is convenience, um, you know, in itself. Yes. And I think kind of what Amazon does so well is you go there, you know the price, all, all the basically the suppliers, if Amazon's not doing it themselves, are competing to be sort of that preferred supplier yes. on price. Yeah. And so you kind of say, well, if you've got this range, you've got this great price, and then the shipping kind of tops it off. That's convenience. And, and they have such great customer service oh, yeah, as yeah, well, yeah. right? Yep, so, yep. The, you the know, you, they're, they're, yeah. they're very good if you have an issue. So, so, so the trust that they build, like, and knowing that the entire experience from, like, not having to sort of go around and price compare and just, you know, one-click purchase, I know it's going to turn up, it's not going to cost anything. It's the whole sort of package that's um, going to be the real challenge, I think, for the mm, New Zealand companies mm. to actually compete with. Yeah. Um, yeah, and from a seller point of view, of course, if, if you if you go on Amazon and you're being forced to compete on price, that's exactly what you don't want to be doing. You know, it's um, it's it's so if you're a seller um, either through Amazon or not through Amazon, it's it's a pretty unpleasant prospect. I would yeah. have thought. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you're definitely caught between a rock and a hard place. Yeah, and I mean, it is fair to say that you know it's easy for uh, you know me to sit here and. Um, Ask why these, you know, why these companies haven't got this stuff better. I mean, it's very, it's very easy to, uh, you know, to have that discussion. And of course, there's a whole lot of, you know, hindsight in terms of how far down the uh, down the track um, there we are. But you know, um, hey, that's not that's 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 not me having to do that stuff. And I'm not sitting yeah. on a on a on a big empire that I can uh, I can boast about how smart I am. But um, <laughs> you know, it's still it's um, yeah. I think it is fascinating to kind of have a look in at these entities and and wonder how they could be done uh, better. But we're we're always going to have a. Um, uh, I guess a, a different view in, in most cases, uh, and they've got a whole lot more information and uh, and data to draw on, and uh, pressures from from shareholders that want returns yeah, and so I, on. Too, I think right? it's also the fresh eyes is really valid though, because you know when you're kind of asking this question, everyone else will be saying that same thing, and they'll say, "Oh, we've got all these like internal things and projects going on," and it's like, okay, but everyone else has sort of seen the same thing. Um, yeah. It's very hard being inside and outside and kind of. Amazon have the advantage of, uh, I would say it's an advantage, you know, of a very visionary shareholder that uh, a CEO who's, you know, directed them from the outside has outset, has the vision and he will always have a long term, a long term view on it, you know, as key shareholder and so on. So it's quite different to that scenario where you've got a publicly listed company that is being run by the shareholder of the, I won't say shareholder of the week or shareholder of the month, but uh, mm. I mean, uh, uh, the CEO of the, you know, of the time, but, you know, you have a CEO who's in there for a period of time and, uh, you know, they're, they're rewarded on mechanisms that I think is actually, it's really hard, uh, to create those that really reward people, um, or reward the leadership, you know, Based on that, uh, that, that, those yeah. longer term outcomes. Rewarded on transformation is probably very difficult. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah I, I can't think of any, any company I've been in where, where there's not sort of this fear of making a mistake that's far greater than sort of getting this, you know, seeing this arc mm. and sort of really investing in like a, a 10 or 20 year vision. Mm. Um, mm. Yeah. You're always trying to uh, protect your tra- traditional business while you're, uh, while you're disrupting it at the same yeah. time. And that's, that's a really unpleasant position to be in. Yeah. There are a few yeah. companies that, that that get that right, and um, it, it, I mean, it's a very interesting time to watch as as companies go through these things. I mean, I think you know Microsoft for a long time we were looking at at, at you know you'd look at Microsoft from the outside and you'd say, look, Amazon, um, Google, are, you know, are just destroying them with you know um, 
uh, Google Apps and this, you know, Cloud Suite and so on. But now, now you look at it, and um, you know, they managed to get get things uh, right and yeah. uh, and looks, deliver. Looks a very and, different company than it did three um, years ago. Yeah, yeah. And just yeah. opening two data centers in Canberra. Um, announced today, I think, earlier yeah, today, to service New Zealand as well, mm. uh, aiming at government clients and people like that, as your data centres. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, companies can turn this stuff around and uh, and get it right. Now, there was one other story that I wanted to chat, um, th- or a couple of other things I wanted to chat, chat through. Just um, quite quickly, uh, Elon Musk put out a, uh, a tweet about... Um, Open um, AI, which uh, which is an organisation he's uh, behind, um, artificial intelligence uh, outfit. Um, I think they're a not for profit, aren't they? And um, you know, he he's somebody that's been very vocal about the risks of artificial intelligence. And you know, I think in, in recent days, when there, there's been the uh, the media coverage around um, North Korea and and nukes and so on, he's saying, well, we should be much more worried about uh, you know what um, could go wrong with artificial intelligence than we should be worried about North Korea and uh, and nukes. Uh, but he he tweeted that um, OpenAI is uh, the first ever to defeat the world's best players uh, in competitive esports uh, and and there's been a whole bunch of uh, media coverage around the world's best uh, Dota 2 players um, basically just being um, uh, destroyed by um, uh, by an AI uh, playing uh, playing against them uh, this this is pretty interesting stuff because the you know the complexity of having an AI uh, being able to you know play these games and so on it's not uh, it's not trivial stuff and it's not not too long ago we heard uh, about um, uh, AI being able to beat uh, you know top player at uh, at Go uh, but this is apparently you know next level up from uh, from there. Mm. Yeah, it is interesting. You know, sort of a few years ago, going back to sort of. Um Elon Musk's sort of comments. He was actually quite. He was quite against AI and, and going there. And it's interesting his involvement now. I think he sort of recognises that you know, the, if you think of AI, how it's kind of broadening in terms of its abilities and, and sort of skills at handling things. You know, it was playing Go a couple of years ago. Now it's kind of driving cars. Um, I think he realises that it's coming, like in terms of a fully broad sort of AI, and saying we shouldn't go there isn't going to cut it because someone will go there. Um, so I think he's kind of hopeful that if he can at least kind of be somewhere around there he can make sure that if it is going to come sort of into the world it's going to be a little bit safer yeah, yeah. It's ai for the masses it's a, an open platform so mm, yeah mm. well and yeah and i guess that's why he's got the you know the the, the open ai is sort of there is to have some positive influence mm. and yeah he's very keen to see the, the government regulation and so on uh, come into but but all is not play. as it seems so is. the Dota 2 um, case, um, yep. apparently it was uh, Dota 2 is normally a game, a multiplayer game, which has five players yes, playing five. that's a great point. And in this case, there was only one player playing one. Mm. Uh, it, the AI also had access to the a- Dota 2 API, which apparently gave it the range of targets 
uh, automatically, whereas a human player would have to calculate that um, themselves. So there's a bit of a fix right. here. So you could, you um, could cheat a little bit when you get access to extra data bit, or, or an unfair advantage. Apparently it taught itself in two weeks. It played all sorts of scenarios, and apparently it is a hell of an achievement. Yes. But uh, there were a couple of things that um, maybe perhaps we should question exactly how complicated this was. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so we'll see. We'll see. Okay. Okay. Oh, good, good stuff. Um, now, yeah, um, Facebook Watch. Just a quick mention. Facebook, are, are, I guess, doing a, a, another um, product that is aimed to keep people even spending even more time on their on their platform. So this looks interesting. It's just launched in the uh, in the US at the moment, and I think just with a limited number of people. Um, probably don't have too much time to dive into it today. But if there is anyone was wanting to know a little bit about more about Facebook's plans there. Um, my weekly video uh, released over the weekend uh, covers that, so you can find find those um, on that on my Facebook page. Um, but James, I was keen to get a bit of an update from you. Last time you were here, you told us uh, about Good Nest. Maybe for those that haven't heard, you can just uh, let them know what Good Nest is about. And a bit of a refresh of um, of what's been happening, what else you've been up to. Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, Goodness is it's kind of like a, um, it's an Uber sort of platform for home services. So we started four years ago doing a, a home cleaning and then a year and a half or so ago we expanded into just other sort of trade services like plumbing, um, electricians, handymen, uh, lawn mowing. And so, yeah, over the last sort of few years we've been building the tech out. We just completed a raise uh couple of months ago uh, for a million dollars that should give us gas in the tank for a sort of a couple of years and um, we're just sort of right now sort of focusing with over the last few years we've basically built sort of this iceberg and you can only see sort of the top five percent on the website but we're at this point now where we've got some you know really good technology and we're now going to start sort of wrapping that into sort of what consumers and, and, and workers see as sort of a really cool sort of mobile experience and, you know, sort of integrated chat and you can see your locksmith driving down the road, you know, it's an emergency. Um, so that's the sort of stuff that's actually sort of starting to come out really quickly from the team. So, so have, you got, have you got an app now that, you know, if, if uh, you have a locksmith who's using your platform or a cleaner or something like that, that they have an app now that they use or they use a web interface or something? So we've to- been using, we don't have an app yet. So that's been built right now using um, React actually for that. Yeah. Um, so uh, we have been using though for a number of months, possibly even years, uh, a mobile sort of browser experience. So, you know, down to how workers kind of get notified about jobs, they can sort of log in and, you know, shop for jobs, sort of, you know, see what, see what's going. But we can also throughout the day for tradespeople say, hey, here's a job in Ponsonby. When we see you working in the morning in Ponsonby and they'll get like a text message with a shortened URL and they can get all the info and accept and decline and choose times that meet with the customer's yep. um, preferences. So we've, we've been learning from the web sort of side and it's been really good because a lot of people like do it mobile first, but we've got so much to learn and to actually deploy things as rapidly as we as we do sort of on the on the browser sort of side it would be impossible we'd have to have like 50 sort of mobile developers or something Mm. Um, but it's really good because now we're at this point where we've been um testing sort of interfaces and dashboards and stuff for workers so we're like we know what we need and we know that we need the sort of you know four months sort of heads down now to build this thing so that's pretty exciting yeah and i mean what what are your common customer situations look like what's the most common time when someone goes to goodness is it when they need someone to 
clean their house? What are what are those what are those common uh, common so the, things? The, the house ones sort of um, sort of a continuous sort of thing. You know, people are generally people book in like a repeating sort of job, so you, they kind of book in, and then you don't really hear from them unless they need to sort of change something or add something to their sort of next clean. Um, for other sort of trade services, what we normally see is kind of like there's this wave in the morning. Um, and then there's sort of stuff around lunchtime, and then there's the evening, and then you get sort of the scattering of complete emergencies that just sort of happen. Um, so we do see this sort of trend where people are just trying to get things done. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And what are the what are the uh, things you mentioned? Plumbers, what cleaners? Yeah, plumbers, what else is there? Electricians, uh, gardeners. So we launched about a month ago recurring gardening, so getting your lawns mowed like however many times you know, like once every five weeks. I actually set one up at home for that. Uh, yesterday, um, handyman, which is like this enormous catch-all, but that's sort of doing everything from fixing, fixing door frames, and you know, we've got a partnership with Women's Refuge around the country where we sort of make those sort of homes sort of safer, and that's been that's been really cool. So they've got quite a wide range of sort of abilities, mm. um, and we sort of learn what each sort of handy person can do. We're like that one can do tiling, that one's kind of a roofing specialist, and so. From learning that, we kind of assign them attributes, and then when the bookings come through, our system's getting a little bit smarter at sort of allocating that. Right. Cool. So one day that'll be pure AI, and it will just figure it all out. Yeah, we, we've basically built it in a way where people are clicking buttons, and at some point we're going to take the button clicking off them. And we know we could probably do it now with a sort of a two weeks sort of heads up, but it's all really good data to see sort of what people are doing and what's working and what's not. And like from the scores of what people make a call on doing, we're going to kind of feed that into an algorithm Mm. and then we'll just turn off the button clicking and then we'll just Mm. kind of just watch it and Mm. just see it do its thing. And then hopefully it'll just tune itself. So that's, that's on the cards this year, Mm. which is really Mm. cool. Now I saw this thing called hoist pop up the Mm. other day and me being sort of curious as I am, who are the shareholders behind this little uh, startup? What's going on? And and your name came up. So yep. tell me, tell me what Hoist is about because we've heard of a company out of Wellington, um, uh, also called Hoist, that um, build tools to make it you know life easier for uh, for software developers and to, you know yep. shorten up the cycle. But yours is uh, a different type of tools, right? Yeah. So so Hoist sort of started about I think we launched about six months ago, um, and it's really sort of a pet project. It's between my brother and I and a, um, a friend Rob, who's a, um, a general manager of a construction company. And what it is is sort of a cloud based toolbox where tradespeople can just add tools. Um, they can lend it out really easily. So the idea is, you know, you start typing someone's name, it'll go into you with permission, of course, your contact list. And if you're connected with Facebook, your friends list, and you click on their name, you say when you want the tool back, and that's it. And then they get notified by a text message that, you know, they've been lent the tool. If they download Hoist, we kind of identify their number and put your tool in their toolbox. So we're just right now trying to solve this problem with a lot of businesses and construction companies and traders. They lend tools out and they lose thousands of dollars a year um, worth of tools where they just forget where they've gone. Um, so that's sort of what we're doing, and then we're going to sort of be adding sort of flexible reminders. So globally, we can have this sort of electrical tagging handled in New Zealand, whatever other laws there are elsewhere, um, sort of catered for. Um, and that's yeah, right. Yeah, it's it's yeah. it's we've we've really just sort of chipped away at this thing. Um, you know, sort of weekends, evenings. My brother wrote the whole thing. Um, and it's just been really fun, just trying to tackle something just from a product point of view and saying. We actually don't have any really idea on how we're going to kind of commercialize it. We've got a 
we've got a few ideas, but we're really just trying to build a really cool sort of tool to help people. I reckon there's a consumer angle on that as well. The, yeah, I mean, actually, what, you know, um, we're always having discussions. It's, so now it's tool and asset tracker. So there you go. You can kind of put things in like, you know, other things like laptops. Um so, yeah, it, it's been going pretty well. We've got, I think, about 400 users, no real promotion. We've been doing a little bit of Facebook um, recently. Um, we're going to add stuff for, t- uh, for Teams soon so that you can basically, um, not, it's not just me lending you tools and you lending me. You could be, um, you know, sort of our boss and, you, and telling me to give you the tool and having sort of a kind of a cohesive company view of your assets. Mm. Um, but we're trying to build it from the ground up. A lot of the sort of tools that, um, you know, construction companies use probably started in the 90s and they'll be Windows-based only. Um, and so we're just trying to solve that day-to-day problem and work up slowly um, once we feel like we've kind of done that. So, yeah, it's been it's been quite fun. That's cool. Some places overseas have tool libraries, a physical tool mm. library where, yep. where you can come in, you can donate tools and you can take tools away and, yep. you know, you book them out and do your job and then bring them back again. It's, yeah. great. it's a great thing. And great. they've got some companies where they have these, like, cages on the walls where you kind of swipe your card and you kind of put your hand in the cage and you pull out the one tool that's in that cage and you have to check it back in and it weighs it to make sure it's the same tool. And it's it's amazing how they try and tackle these different things. And then in other com- um, companies that we kind of – countries that we look at um, – so Dubai, they actually just all the workers turn up on a bus and the company has their own sort of like stand where it's all the company's tools and they give them and then they check them in it in the, in the afternoon they'll kind of go back. Of course, New Zealand tradies often own their own tools, don't they? Yeah, they do. And yeah. a lot go missing. So, yeah, yeah we, you know, we still like serial numbers and all that sort of stuff so that if, uh, you know, your van gets broken into, you can kind of get the list of everything that's been sort of flogged. Mm, mm. And, yeah, you, you get quite a lot of variety around the world at different Rules as far as safety aspects and all sorts yeah. of, uh, you know. Bits, and so the challenge is to try and build things that we're not going to have to understand the idiosyncrasies in every um, sort of jurisdiction. We'll just say, you know, is there a recurring sort of thing that we need to do? They can give it the title they want and they can let the person they know, um, you know, deal with that with that email address or phone mm-hmm. number. So, yeah, it's, it's quite a fun little thing. Um, if I had a hammer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Right, um, all I'm doing. Rob. What have you been working on lately? Oh, actually quite a bit. Um, I'm, I'm a sort of writer, so um, basically writing stories for reseller news is my main uh, my main deal. I've been over in Hamilton Island to our Edge conference, uh, which is basically the, a whole bunch of uh, channel people within the channel, distributors and channel partners, and we had a fantastic three days over there um, talking about, uh, I guess, the future of the channel and the shape of the channel in the future. So that's... Uh, that was really enlightening. Had some very good research actually that we've uh, we, we've commissioned ourselves and, and rolled out to various people. So that's uh, that's probably the main gig. I do a bit of writing for Noted as well. So I do a bit of uh, mm. some business stories for Noted, which is the Bauer Media website collects up all their content from the listener in north and south things like that. And I've got a few other gigs floating around the place. Um, I'm kind of a contractor slash free- freelancer. Yeah, yeah. I'll yeah. oh, keep pretty busy and. Um so where do people track track you down online? Are you uh, active on Twitter? Or yeah, Twitter's the, really my place. Yeah. So uh, Rob Owens, R O B O N Z, that will find me. Good stuff. Yeah. And James, I'm on Twitter. I think I'm James McAvoy. I don't. I kind of just read stuff on there. I don't post a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. Oh, that's good. Well, thank you both for uh, for being on the show. I think we've had some some good discussion, um, and we may 
continue some after we turn off the mic, but uh, we don't want to tell listeners that they might realise what they're missing out on. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it's been great to to chat. And um, look, we'll look forward to having you both back on on the show in the future. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for uh, for listening in. And we will catch you again next week. You can catch my um, updates. You can sign up for uh, my email newsletters at paulspain.com slash updates. uh, And my videos are um, up on Facebook. All right. Thanks, everyone. See you. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.